0: Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canadaland supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canadaland shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes. Like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today.
1: You do not simply lob tomatoes across the Pacific. I'm not very much interested in leading Canada. That
2: was not an insult. It was an invitation to educate yourself.
1: Conservatives are united. We are the only option. Don't waste your time with the Maverick party. You've got on one side, someone who doesn't believe there's a crisis. And then on the other, you got Mr. Trudeau who doesn't act like there's a crisis.
3: This is a historic moment we are living through. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and government policies as fairy tales and picture books. Today is the last show before we get the results of this historic, consequential election. But there's so much we didn't talk about or hear about, including reconciliation, race, and much more. Let's briefly get into some of the things that we overlooked and how much we trust these leaders. And we're voters, but we're also taxpayers. We now know how much each of the political platforms would cost us. Are all the dollar signs and promises enough? Joining me today, we've got a guest backbencher, Pamela Palmer, Mi'kmaq lawyer and professor in Toronto. Hello, and thank you so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really pumped. Murad Hamadi, reporter at The Logic, is back for a second consecutive week. What's up?
4: Hi. <laughs>
3: <laughs> That's the mood we're all in. Mm-hmm. And she was name-dropped at the Leader's Debate, former MP and author of Can You Hear Me Now, Selena Caesar Chavan. Welcome back. Thank
2: you for having me. I'm looking forward to this discussion.
3: There's less than a week left till Canada's 44th election ends. There's too much to talk about, too little time. Let's get into it. So this election has been weird and frustrating for so many reasons, but the biggest, in my opinion, are all the things it hasn't been about. It's only been three months since the remains of 215 Indigenous children were found in unmarked graves at a former residential school in Kamloops, B.C. That started a series of near-daily discoveries of similar sites at residential school sites across the country. Despite that, I haven't heard the word genocide said once during the campaign. In their first French-language debate, the leaders spent more time discussing a bridge in Quebec than they did Indigenous issues. No mention of the lack of access to clean drinking water on First Nations or expanding Indigenous decision-making. It's not like the leaders didn't have opportunities to engage with the issue— At the only English language debate, 18-year-old Merrick McLeod of Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, with an eagle feather in hand, asked the leaders the most important question of the night. How
4: can I trust and respect the federal government after 150 plus years of lies and abuse to my people? And as prime minister, what will you do to rebuild the trust between First Nations and the federal government?
3: So, Pam, let's start here. The leader's responses to Merrick were broad and vague and included no solutions. What could they have said here to show some seriousness on this file? Well, I think they could have at least Pointed to their platforms,
0: whether you like or dislike each of their platforms, at a minimum, you would think, well, here's what a liberal government's going to do. We are going to protect human rights under the Canadian Human Rights Act. We're going to implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. We're going to continue on our engagement with Murdered and Missing. And same with the NDP. They could have said those things. I mean, conservatives would have been left without anything to say, but uh, they could have made, I mean, they could have referenced something in their platforms. And it just, it amazes me to think that these party leaders think we're going to be impressed by the same old speaking points. What a missed opportunity on All of their parts, all five of them.
3: So let's briefly talk about what's in their platforms, right? At the English language debate, again, the only time we've heard the leader speak at all about reconciliation, we heard Trudeau falsely deny that he was taking Indigenous kids to court. His government is actually challenging two orders from the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal that compels Ottawa to pay compensation to the victims of on-reserve First Nations child welfare system. Trudeau urged everyone not to overlook his record during that debate, He said he's lifted over 100 long-term boil advisories. In fact, new ones have been added. 52 still remain in place. He's also done very little on the missing, murdered uh, Indigenous women and girls plan. So, Selena, do we trust that if Trudeau gets elected, he'll do better based on what we heard during the debates and based on what's in his platform?
2: Uh, No. The other slogan that has also disappeared from Trudeau is better is always possible. And has been replaced with there's much, but there's much more to do. After four years as a majority, two years and a minority to kind of clean up anything that's you've left behind. Um, and under that majority saying that we will be done with boiled water advisories by 2021, that we were going after after Colton Bushi, ensure that there was a rights framework for Indigenous people, ensure that we were putting forward UNDRIP and that uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women, uh, that issue would be front and center in a 2015 election. Six years later, and there's much more to do, but get out of here with that, like take several seats because it's not working. We're not buying it anymore.
3: I should note that the Liberal Platform's brief chapter on reconciliation uses the word continue or continuing more than 50 times in its pledging, which I thought was interesting. I did the math. Good
2: for you. Good um, for you doing that, because that seems to be what their rhetoric is. Put us in for another four years so we can continue to, to half step.
3: But I also want to talk about Erin O'Toole and the conservatives here. Pam, you brought them up and you sort of wrote them off. Totally. But The platform does include uh, economic reconciliation and partnership with Indigenous peoples. It seems to be central to to all their pledges. Erin O'Toole has promised to rebuild broken trust if his party forms government, but he's also the same man that opposed the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People and voted in Parliament against legislation requiring Ottawa to harmonize federal law with the Declaration's 46 articles. And his platform also promises to crack down on blockaders of infrastructure projects. Murad, do we think Aaron O'Toole is the right leader to move forward with reconciliation? How much do we need to consider the party's track record here, according to what Pam said anyway?
4: I mean, this uh, particular frame, which is sort of like, I guess a shorthand for it would be allowing First Nations and indigenous communities to say yes to energy projects. It's the sort of basis of this economic reconciliation idea, um, property rights, uh, you know, uh, communities that do want uh, energy projects, pipeline projects, what have you. You know, in every case, there are some, uh, of course, that have signed on to projects or that the leaders of those communities have signed on to projects. So it really is a focus on that. I mean... Is the Erin Tool Conservative Party the conservative party of Stephen Harper? Justin Trudeau is trying to make that point again. Um, it's the thing that we come back to every time we get into the late stages of an election. I certainly cannot say whether the community sees pitching this to trust the people. They're not pitching a different plan.
3: Pam, let's get your thoughts on Erin Tool and the conservative plan. Is there anything in that plan that gives you, gives you a sense of trust? No,
0: definitely not. So you have to keep in mind the whole context. So voted against UNDRIP. He does not support UNDRIP and defended that at the debates. There's only one article that he references in there, and that's the right to participate in the economy. But for him, he defines the economy as the extractive industry, and he defines who's going to benefit as private Indigenous corporations, not First Nations, not Métis governments and not Inuit. And so that's huge. You know the direction. He's he's very much focused on individuals making money, not governments making money. Uh, The the other thing that really concerns me is that he's attacking the Canadian Human Rights Act to remove some of the protections against hate crime, which Indigenous peoples will be a part of, criminalizing protests. We saw under the Harper government, they brought in Bill C-51, the anti-terrorism legislation, which basically expanded surveillance and monitoring uh, that would be targeted at people who aka threaten national infrastructure. Um, and this is in line with what's happening at the provincial level. If you look at Jason Kenney and Doug Ford and Scott Moe and the former uh, Manitoba Premier Brian Pallister, their, their hard law and order take on Indigenous peoples and control, nothing a substantive, not even a full sentence on murder to missing Indigenous women and girls. And the only water issues he's going to address are the most urgent ones, not all of them. So it's a very impoverished platform.
2: So I was very candid um, yesterday on another program saying that I would vote for my local conservative candidate, um, Malia Shahid, and I know her and I know who she is. I know... Um, what she stands for. And I, I, I know that she will challenge some of these issues. When it comes to Aaron O'Toole, we will have to keep holding him to account. But I know for certain that the rhetoric and the actions of the current liberal government have, n- have not aligned. And I don't think that the NDP are going to, are going to quite get enough votes to form government. And what I want Canadians to do is to just think about Do we keep rewarding bad behavior or do we try something different?
3: Well, I guess that's why we're having the segment, right? We're talking about overlooked issues in the campaign trail and not just by the liberals, but by all parties. And and Pam, you brought up hate crimes and systemic racism and hate are two issues that have followed leaders on the campaign trail, but they haven't really been addressed by anyone uh, similar to reconciliation. Like we've seen signs defaced with swastikas, racial slurs. The man who threw a rock at Trudeau in London, Ontario was charged with assault. He's a white supremacist known to post neo-Nazi content online. He was recently Kicked out of the People's Party of Canada Aaron O'Toole this past weekend Kicked out one candidate for posting Islamophobic content two years ago But he's taken no action against another Who made similar comments a month ago He put out this uh, a video this weekend To mark one year since a man Outside a Toronto area mosque was stabbed And in that video he said We will stand against Islamophobia But his platform doesn't mention it And he doesn't really talk about the how Of standing against Islamophobia Meanwhile, the pandemic has hit racialized people harder than others and saw an increase in hatred and intolerance. So I guess the reason why I wanted to talk about these overlooked issues is because they are social justice issues that our leaders don't quite seem capable of of addressing, not just on the campaign trail, but through a policy lens. And I'm wondering, Murad, if you agree with Celino, where is it just, do we just change government and give someone else a chance to address these issues more head on?
4: So... If you think back two years to the, the last election, after the, yeah. the brown face scandal that became the blackface scandal broke, uh, and we were starting to have those revelations day after day after day, I, I remember Jagmeet Singh being on the campaign trail and starting to get a bunch of questions about Trudeau, about the issue. All of the questions that he got were about sort of how he felt about it, how it affected him which was important. He wanted to come out and talk about this. He gave sort of a, 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 a structured remark about it at some point. I bring that up because I feel like we're sort of back at that place two years later, where last week, this uh, Indian international student, uh, his name was Prabjot Singh Katri, was found dead in Nova Scotia. And I think some of the leaders made sort of statements about it on the uh, on the campaign trail. But it was very much like, you know, we need to do something to uh address this issue of hatred. What? Right at the end of this uh, last parliamentary session, like literally on the last day, the liberals tabled a bill to update hate crime legislation, uh, and they launched this consultation on online hate uh, that they wanted to uh, get feedback on their proposed measures. The measures themselves are controversial among people who like are very much on the side of wanting to do something about it, as well as people who see this as a a restriction of freedom. Putting aside that debate, the fact that it happened on the very last day is a priority indication, right? Erno O'Toole was asked uh, why uh, in his platform the word puppy appears more than the word racism. (laughs) uh, And his response was, well, I've talked about it in the past. Congratulations to all our federal leaders. They've recognized at some point that racism exists. I'm very glad that they can see what's in front of them what they're going to do about it uh, is vaguely sketched out in the platform. There's no detail.
2: The t- challenge with that, though, is like you have one that, has, that says nothing in their platform and the other, especially when it comes to anti-blackness, that it has a laundry list of money that they've invested, but no real impact, like no real tangible, this money will then translate to X outcome. And, and there's, there's a challenge with that. And especially when, you know, some of the investments have been wrought with challenges. The community service fund for black communities, for example, Operation Black Vote, Black Lives Matter didn't get funded because they weren't black enough. Like, you really need to peel back some of, some of the, the rhetoric from all parties and, and decide whether, whether racism is something that you just speak about ad nauseum or Something that you actually want to tackle and tackling means that you have to dismantle the current structure, meaning, for example, the black class action lawsuit that is happening right now where workers within the federal public service have been working for decades, not receiving a promotion, having being harassed, receiving racist and sexist uh, remarks and treatment throughout their time there dismantling that and saying, we're going to do something about it, even if we just start in our own house. And that has not been the case. I also think it's important though, to actually look at the platforms too.
0: What are they promising? So regardless of what they have or haven't done Aaron O'Toole isn't promising anything to address hate crimes. In fact, he's going to repeal some of the provisions in the Canadian Human Rights Act to allow more free speech, is what he calls, a.k.a. hate crime, without consequences. Uh, and that's pretty serious. And he's also giving more money to police, border security, law enforcement, all of those agencies that uh, wrestle with us. He's not supporting either Jordan's principle or Joyce's principle, which is about racism and healthcare for indigenous peoples. NDP and Liberals are both saying we're going to support and beef up the Canadian Human Rights Act, we're going to both implement UNDRIP, which is about also systemic racism and we're also going to address some aspects of the RCMP so on the Liberal side, they're saying, okay, we're going to review the RCMP whether or not um, their internal processes are working, NDP take it further, they want to legislate zero tolerance on violence and to have a, uh, a review of the funding that they get. So you see, you know, liberals and NDP taking stabs at systemic racism in different categories, basically headline uh, responses. Conservatives, nothing, because they don't even agree in any fundamental way that there is systemic racism and instead tons of money going to law enforcement uh, across the board, not just policing, but also border security, natural resources, military. He's just going to give tons of money to the most problematic of the institutions.
3: Well, I think, Pam, you framed it really well, right? Like it, racism isn't just like the an incident of hate that occurs against a community of people. It's it's ingrained in all institutions and levels of society from policing to healthcare to education. And I feel like leaders aren't able to convey that holistic approach and, and, and aren't able to define racism in a way. So I agree with Murad. I think when it even comes to, before we even get to the what, I don't think leaders fully understand the, you know, the definition of racism, like regardless of the fact that they're all white, unfortunately, like the main two <laughs> contenders are, are, are white men. Erin like O'Toole and Justin Trudeau don't necessarily experience racism, but it, you can't talk about the what if you can't even convey to people why it matters.
4: So Anna May Paul is a black Jewish woman who's uh, the leader of a federal uh, party Uh and was on that stage. Um, and uh, a lot of her answers, frankly, in the back of the debate were pretty similar to each other. And a lot of them were sort of, you know, uh, to, to sort of solve this issue, we need people, we need to bring people together, but she made the point at various points that also we need people who, uh, who uh, look and sound and have uh, experiences more like her in a, in a few less of the sort of the monotony uh, or the, the, monochromeness, there's whatever the form of that <laughs> word is, uh, that has been our history. I think that only takes you so far, though. And, like, I mean, maybe I will just let uh, Selena uh, talk about uh, this and shut up. I don't think it's enough to say, like, you need to have these people around the table because quite often she used that response to not provide details of plan. Like, the the who is important, but the what, frankly, inevitably matters more because you can get all the who's around the table and then none of the what's happen. I don't think it's enough for a leader to get up and say, I, you know, I have this background that is different than anyone else. uh, And so I'm bringing that to the table. That is important. But I also, frankly, want to hear what they are going to do then. Like Mm -hmm. your background is not the
2: full answer of the question. But, you know, representation matters. And people say that all the time. But if nothing matters to that representative, does representation really matter? If they're not going to stand up for issues, does representation matter? So to your point, um, bringing people to the table just to have people at the table so they can be tokenized, or they can be a nice picture for your next Black History Month event, then there really is no point to having them there don't bring someone in who is knowledgeable about Indigenous law and ask them to do something that is not going to help their communities.
3: How do we actually get the leaders to um, leverage that expertise that Marad and Selena were talking about, Pam? What do we ask of them or what do we demand from them that takes them from, you know, pledges to action? Well, I think
0: they really need to focus on the how of what they're going to do. So like, take for example, they're all pledging a million plus jobs. Great. I can do that too. I could literally go on my podcast and say, hey, I can create a million jobs if you fund me on Patreon. Um, <laughs> anyone can say that. How? And how does that tie into all of the other things that are happening? Some of the parties that talk about Indigenous jobs as if they're only just in mining. Good grief. There's so many more of us who work outside of that. What about linking climate change and jobs? Are you talking about green tech? If you just promise a million jobs... But it's for the tar sands? No thanks. We're really lacking on the how, and I think all of the leaders need to, you know, really boost up on the how they're going to do
3: this and show me that this makes sense and it's connected to everything else. To wrap up this conversation, very quickly, what's one other issue that's also been overlooked this election campaign, in your opinion, that maybe shouldn't have been? If I can indulge, because I am the host of The Backbench, I I would say young people uh, who were dubbed the lockdown generation during the pandemic. Pandemic and haven't come up once during this campaign. The Liberal plan does have the most focus on youth compared to its counterparts, but they've hardly spoken about their promises on the trail. In the Conservative plan, the word youth comes up just four times, while the word student just comes up twice. So read into that however you want. And the NDP has one page on, quote, closing the education gap with some broad promises about increasing access to education. I'm worried about young people, not speaking just as a young person, but I am genuinely worried about young people and and their future and for the next government, considering they've gotten zero airtime, this campaign trail. But over to you all, what's one issue that you think has been overlooked that shouldn't have been?
4: Uh, Skills. The uh, jobs of the future are not going to be the jobs of today. And uh, the liberals promised a big uh, reskilling push two years ago. It seems to have disappeared during the pandemic. There's Also, the Conservatives have a plan. They're not necessarily uh, spelling it out on the campaign trail. The NDP also have some vague promises. Skills are going to matter.
3: And with skills also, we probably should talk about immigration, which apparently is the be-all and end-all of all our labor shortages. But it actually isn't, and it should probably should talk about it more. Selena, what's one thing that's been overlooked that shouldn't have been in your opinion?
2: I tweeted about it on December 4th, 2019. um, To make disability inclusion a priority, People that have multiple intersecting identities have increasing disadvantages that will be impacted by climate change, by a pandemic, by racial, social injustices. And if we're not looking out for the most vulnerable in our communities, they will be left behind. And uh, if disability is not part of that platform, is not part of our conversations, then we're not having an adequate conversation about, um, about anything, to be honest.
0: And for me, it's all about land back and Indigenous self-determination. They're quick to talk about headline issues like water or housing or, you know, um, responding to Indigenous languages and maybe whether or not they'll be official. But where are they on the core conflict issue which is land back if you look at the liberal platform they're talking about involving indigenous peoples more in joint decision making over climate change well that's not land back that's not return of lands control over lands, self-determination if you look at the conservatives there uh, there's definitely no land back there if you look at the NDP they'll respect land rights But they don't translate, how are you going to do that? Because they all say they respect land rights, but they don't. So that's a real big one for me.
4: Madam Speaker, I have a point of order.
0: What's your point of order,
3: Murad?
4: So uh, on uh, this occasion, when we have a BIPOC, a Black Indigenous panel of color, discussing uh, election issues, I wanted to uh, remind people that there's no such thing in Canada as the ethnic vote. Canadian uh, immigrants <laughs> and uh, newcomers vote in similar patterns to everybody else in the country. There's this long standing myth that newcomers particularly, so recent immigrants, uh, are more likely to vote liberal, uh, particularly the, the the set of immigrants that came during the, the P D, the Peter Elliot Trudeau era, uh, when the liberals opened up uh, immigration programs to more people, particularly from Asia and, and to a lesser extent to people from Africa. You just have to look at the ring of writings around uh, Toronto, the 905 writings, to show that that is not the case. Mm-hmm. They swing the same way everybody else does. Uh, a lot of those uh, ridings are majority-minority now. Uh, they have a very large, particularly um, Chinese-Canadian and Punjabi-Canadian populations. They vote the same way everybody else does. There is no such thing as the ethnic vote.
3: Not a point of order, but valid, valid criticism. And I feel like we need to add it to the backbench's hypothetical dictionary of banned political words. <laughs> I
2: disagree with you, Madam Speaker. You should give him that one as a point of order. <laughs>
3: I'll, I'll take it under consideration.
2: Thank you. <laughs> uh, I have a point of order.
3: What's your point of order, Selena?
2: So, Madam Speaker, <laughs> my point of order is related to something I said earlier today. And... Um, while uh, I had a conversation earlier that said I was going to vote differently in my riding for my local candidate, people have assumed that I have crossed the floor, Madam Speaker, I want everybody to know that I have not crossed the floor, I sit very much as an independent, it really is about Pushing people to think differently, to actually look at the record when they are voting and to ensure that we're not just remotely voting for who we have always voted for. So um, while I'm sitting as an independent and very much an independent, have a, a liberal heart, I have not crossed the floor. So i like the record to address that.
3: Uh I wish I had power to correct the record for <laughs> you, but you know what? Noted. Noted. The backbench notes that Selena Caesar Chavan is her own woman and can vote however she pleases. But
0: wait, I have an actual point of order.
3: <laughs> Those two weren't points of order. I have an actual
0: one, Madam Speaker. What is your point of order, Pam? Okay, so this one is just really enraging. Yves-Francois Blanchet, the bloc party leader... He actually refused to answer questions about systemic racism in his province of Quebec until he was able to go to a quieter venue. (laughs) Uh, Imagine if indigenous and black and other racialized peoples had the power to say, you know what? I don't want to be racialized today. I only want to do that where I can go off and it's quiet and comfortable and I don't really have to answer any questions or or put up with police racism or abuse or be denied
3: health care. Uh, that's a point of order to me. I think it's a petition to create quieter spaces for racialized people only. <laughs>
1: That's stamps.com. Code program.
3: If our first segment was about the things our leaders didn't talk about during Canada's 44th election, then our second is what they did talk about, and that's money. Look, money is not my favorite topic, but we are all taxpayers, so what the parties want to do here matters. Maybe. Maybe. Murad's going to tell us. For the longest time, the mark of a serious and good government was their plan to balance the budget. But then a pandemic happened and governments everywhere decided to turn the taps on and had this magical realization. Wow, maybe we can spend money and fix things? This campaign, the parties have different plans when it comes to spending. So the Liberal platform sees $78 billion in spending with $25 billion in revenue over the next five years. They promise to have the deficit down to $32 billion in this time period. The Conservatives will spend more than the Liberals in their first year in government and then let the economy fix itself. They're pledging $51 billion in spending over the next five years. Their biggest savings comes from cutting the Liberals' $10 a day daycare plan, which costs $27 billion dollars. The Conservatives want to replace it with a child care tax credit, which we're awaiting a little more details on. They say they don't have to cut anything else because the economy will grow enough and the deficit will just shrink to under $25 billion in five years. The new Democrats are promising a far-ranging $214 billion spending plan over the next five years to create social programs like Pharmacare and Dental Care. They're vowing to pay for it by imposing a 1% tax on families who make more than $10 million a year and ultra-profitable corporations. That's a lot of numbers. So, Murad, what's the significance of them and why should voters care?
4: Deficits matter because if you're running deficits, you're borrowing money to pay for things now. And at some point, you'll have to pay them back and you have to pay interest on that money that you borrow the liberal argument for the last six years has been that interest rates are historically low, which is true, so it's never been cheaper to borrow money. Uh, and uh, the last time we had sort of a deficit debt panic was during the Kacham Martin years when interest rates were a lot higher, so it was much more expensive to borrow all of this money. This is the top level. The more interesting thing I think right now is that if you look at um, the 2019 uh, federal budget, so the last budget before the pandemic, Uh, the deficit was in the range of the sort of dozens of billions. Dozens of billions versus the 2021 budget, the one that we just saw tabled in uh, April, had a deficit of $154 And the thing is that in between those two during the pandemic, there's been lots of conversations about like, was the money spent correctly? I don't think there's been a done that says this was completely out of whack. Like, you know, we spent an order of magnitude too much money. Even fiscal conservatives or traditional fiscal conservatives accepted that the, am- that the general shape of the amount of money was more or less right. Uh, now, there's lots of arguments about how that money was targeted, who got it, all of that. But the actual figures are not hugely controversial anymore for the pandemic. And that's a sea change. Like, that is a step change in how we look at this issue. The second thing is... In the 2015 election, the Liberals ran on continuing to run a deficit. The NDP, under Tom Mulcair, promised not to run uh, a deficit. The Conservatives promised not to run a deficit. And Trudeau won. Uh, and the argument was, well, now deficits don't matter. Trudeau's win proves that. This election, I think, might be the case, uh, the final case, The deficits don't matter to voters, at least right now. Justin Trudeau refuses to provide a date for when he plans to balance the budget, The NDP, I don't think you would have expected it, and they're uh, delivering on that non-expectation. The conservatives are saying they're going to balance the budget in 10 years. Uh, And I just want to point out that anything you promise in 10 years is a fairy tale. It doesn't matter what it is, because what you're saying is, elect us now with a majority. Then elect us again in four (laughs) years with a majority. Then elect us four (laughs) years after that with a majority. Then we'll do what we're promising to do in 10 years, because you have to maintain majority governments for... All of that time to ensure anything will happen. So if, you know, if we've got two parties who won't promise to eliminate the deficit and one who will do it in a picture book,
2: uh, I don't think the deficit matters to voters this election. And, you know, I remember, and it, and it ties back to our previous conversations about social justice, and I remember being in government and saying, you know, things need to happen. We need to repeal mandatory minimums. We need to have expungements of records. We need to have the, the Indigenous Rights Framework. We need to have all these. We need to, you know, get the bold water advisories. Oh, Selena, government moves very, very slowly, very slowly. Stop being unreasonable. Government moves slowly. A pandemic hit, and Billions of dollars got turned out on a dime, Mm -hmm. on a dime. And I have to scratch my head because clearly government can move fast when it comes to social justice issues. They don't move fast. And I think if we look at those numbers and our capacity to now say we could spend billions and we could do this and we could do that, but at the end of the day, we are not seeing actual results, we're not seeing the, the dismantling of racial issues, then you could spend all the money that you want if it has no impact. What, what are we spending it for?
3: Murad and Selena, you both bring up an interesting point, right? If every party is spending, the question we have to ask then is, are they spending on the right thing? I want to get into some specifics of the costed platforms. And I'm going to focus on the conservative plan here because the liberals are offering the same stuff they promised in their last budget, which we've already talked about in various different episodes. So the conservatives say they'll proactively spend on programs and spend differently from the liberals on things like the innovation economy, workers' benefits, and infrastructure. But they're also significantly holding off in an increases in federal health transfers, which all the provinces have been asking for, and they're possibly shafting the care economy. Pam are we worried that the Conservatives are finding benefits by not providing the one thing that women and, and almost all workers are asking for, which is childcare? Well, I mean, that's the
0: hard part about pinning down the conservative platform, as we know when it's costed out, it's phenomenally less. You're still going to be paying over $1,000 a month on average instead of $200. So that doesn't help. See, I think part of the problem is uh, is that leaders talk about specific individual items. And they don't say, well, how does this item relate to this item? Oh, so I am a defender of human rights. Really? Because you voted against abortion for women. Really? Because you voted against UNDRIP. And so where are you actually putting that money? Do you care about systemic racism? Why on earth are you going to flood the RCMP with tons of money and border security and create all these new departments and more surveillance and, and more immigration surveillance How is that addressing systemic racism? We know it doesn't. We know it just makes it worse. So it's about seeing how everything is linked. Don't just look at the one item line promise. See, how does that relate to what you're saying over here in the other part of your platform? Kind of like, oh, we respect Indigenous rights. Really? Because what you're saying is we're going to be making sure that you can't even cancel a project before talking to Indigenous peoples and, and Indigenous corporations, not even Indigenous governments. So it's, you can't ever just look at a line item. And I think all of the parties, you need to do that kind of analysis. Does that link here? Does this monetary contribution over here outweigh what you're losing
3: on this side of the calculation? You know, I'm focusing on the child care specifically because it's such a big deal, like, what's the difference between tax credits and actual services? Because they're both benefits, but does how they're accessed and whether the government or individuals access them matter here when we're looking at this costed platform?
4: I mean, there's something of an efficiency argument, right? So, the idea of the conservative plan, as I understand it, is that if you give, you're essentially giving the money more directly to parents or people who have uh, dependents that need access to childcare. Uh, to decide how they spend it, uh, and in so doing, you're removing sort of a layer of bureaucracy. You're not creating a one-size-fits-all system that uh, might have might not be useful to some people. The argument on the opposite side as well, in certain provinces, Quebec, obviously being the outstanding one, uh, there's already a system, and you're just putting money into a system we've already spent all this money to build. So why not just do that? Also, it's proven effective in Quebec in many ways. But just to To Pam's point, a platform and a budget assumes the money gets spent. And the money often doesn't get spent. In 2017, the deficit uh, was lower than, uh, it was like, $5.6 $5.6 billion lower than projected. And a lot of that was because the economy was doing better than uh, expected. So there was more tax revenue and, and the sort of tax base grew, the deficit narrowed. Uh, but also like year over year over year, if you look at both the previous conservative government and the current level government, there are departments that consistently underspend what they're budgeted. So for example, I cover innovation, science and economic development, Canada. And last fiscal, uh, they were short by about $750 million. Uh, for what they were projected to spend, and you go back years, it's not always that big, but it's always there. So Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that that does is it makes the fiscal performance at the end of the year look better than they had projected, but it's because they haven't spent money they've allocated. Pam will correct me here if I'm wrong, but I seem to remember that there was also money set out, for example, for uh, for, uh, looking for the remains of Indigenous children uh, at some point. That money was never spent. Uh, that was a much smaller program, but I just mean, I bring it up just to say, you know, there are lots of things that the government, that governments, not just this liberal government, but governments in general, say our priorities, allocate money to, never spend the money on, and then those things don't happen.
0: No, and that's important. I, d- I just wanted to follow that up. Both liberal and conservative governments in different years have turned back as much as almost a billion dollars on Indigenous issues, money they didn't spend. So think about how much that would have affected, you know, bringing water to a First Nation, for example. And and it's both governments. So it's not like one is better than the other. They both consistently turn back money. And in fact, when I used to work in the federal government, Uh, executives used to get bonuses based on how much money they didn't spend and they turned back. So we have a real disincentive, at least on the Indian Affairs file, and that's what it used to be called, uh, for actually spending the money that you commit, knowing that it's also never enough, by the way, to address all these things. And so if you're not even spending that bare minimum, no wonder these files don't
3: move forward in a more equitable way. And there's also details that we don't know, right? So, for example, the Conservatives Climate portion of their plan isn't costed. We don't know how much they'll they'll spend on on some of their climate policies, like their personal low carbon savings account, which we've talked about on this show. Um, you know, we don't know how much money they're earmarking for indigenous people. Uh, you know, conservatives just have like two line items to use Pam's words. Liberals have five, some more jargony than others. The NDP is pledging to spend $30 billion on reconciliation. But again, the how, which is we we have a trend through this conversation, the how is missing. So, Selena, you know, we don't know what the economy will look like in 10 years. I don't know what my life will be like in 10 months. So if I'm a voter and who's thinking about who can help me in the next 18 months to four years, the period any MP is elected for, and I'm seeing all these numbers of, you know, what they're going to spend on what, what should I be considering? What should I be thinking about?
2: I should be considering track record. You should be considering what has actually been accomplished. You should also be considering how on which um, platform may, or considering that some things in the platform actually never materialize, never get spent, never get done. So I, I put very little faith in platforms, to be quite honest. But you can look at the platforms and then decide which um, which candidate will best serve your you and your community's interest. I think we have to look
0: at the whole package, like Selena was saying, where I disagree with her is looking at the candidates. Uh, to me, it's the party. What's the party's history? What's the party's track record? What's the party's promises? What has what the party done? What do they say in the media? Are they saying one thing in the platform, but saying something totally different? So less about personalities, because ultimately, Everyone has to tow the party line and what the party promises, that's primarily their objective. So I think they need to look really at the party. What does the party stand for? Do they stand for human rights, climate change, uh, addressing systemic racism, or do they stand for, Mm -hmm. you know, more oil and gas, more police officers? And it really comes down to that. Otherwise you can get into the nitty gritty of their little tiny line items in the hopes that it makes it into their, if elected, their budget statement, their throne speech, and then hope that it makes it into at least the first... First year of funding, because oftentimes when you see things, oh, yes, we'll spend this in year six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It's like that means nothing. Focus on the party, what they've done, what they haven't done, what they're saying.
3: Murad, you're our business reporter. We've talked about overlooked uh, issues. We've talked about promises. We've talked about dollars. What should voters take to the ballot box on Monday?
4: A piece of ID. (laughs) (laughs) Best answer ever. Good advice.
3: We had a very fast ranging conversation this episode because this is the last episode before everyone goes to vote on Monday if you haven't already voted in the advance polls so I hope some of it makes sense but as always <laughs> there's so much going on so we're going to have a very rapid fire section where everyone has to respond in 10 words or less <laughs> so Pam the People's Party of Canada is sitting at about 4% of popular support which quite frankly scares me Aaron O'Toole told Global's Mercedes Stevenson he's not worried about the PPC voters taking away from his, quote, big tent party, saying that everyone belongs in the Conservative Party. Should he be worried? Should we be worried? What are we feeling about PPC? I think Conservatives
0: could go and vote for PPC. I think maybe 20, 30 percent of them should go vote oh for Oh, my them. God. <laughs>
3: That would be really funny to split the conservative vote, but that's also my worst nightmare because the PPC are racist. Selena, as we're recording, anti-vax protesters have gathered outside hospitals across the country. Healthcare workers are feeling very unsafe right now. What role should federal leaders be playing here?
2: They should be condemning it. Um uh, we should be talking less about Maxime Bernier to be quite honest with you. Um but But that should be something that should be front and center for our healthcare workers. Our first responders have been through enough. They do not need to be going through this.
3: And then by the time you all come back on the show, we'll have a new government unless something majorly goes wrong on September 20th, which is next Monday. So, Murad, what's one thing Canada's 45th government should tackle? What's one thing they probably will tackle? I'm pressing the bell to answer. I'm putting him out of the spot. I can I can see his brain just like <laughs> cursing at me. <laughs> I
4: think the uh, question of when we open our borders to travelers will be a pressing issue in two months, and I think it's one that um, we need to make smart uh, and non ideological decisions about.
3: All right, Pam, you can answer too. Everyone can answer this one. What's one thing <laughs> Canada's 45th government should tackle? What's one thing they probably will tackle? They should tackle climate change huge amen what they will tackle mm, the pandemic selena should and will
2: i i agree and that they will tackle the pandemic um they should tackle climate change and they wouldn't connect that both of those are at the cross-section of that is racial justice and social what justice. she said what she said <laughs>
3: On that note, let's adjourn. That's the Backbench. We'll be back next week, the day after the election, to try and make sense of whatever happens. We're so grateful you're listening to us. Please tell us what you like or what you want to hear more about. Send us your questions, your concerns, your rants. You can email us at backbench at canadaland.com. You can find us on Twitter at Backbenchcast. If this episode gave you some insight into this historic, consequential election, write a review and rate the podcast wherever you're listening to podcasts, just click something. If you don't have plans for election night yet, you can come hang out with me and a few of our backbenchers, including some CanadaLand staff, we broke Jesse Brown into it, and other special guests. We're going to have a Twitter space at 9.30pm Eastern. We're going to kick back, talk shit, and maybe take questions on that cursed platform. So see you there. I'm Fatma Sayed, and you can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. Murad, where can people find you?
4: Um, I'm at thelogic.co and on Twitter at M-U-R-A-D-H-E-M.
3: Pam, thank you so much for being a guest backbencher. I hope you'll come back. Where can people follow your work? Pampalmeter.com. Everything is there. And Selena, other than being in the national headlines, where can people find you?
2: (laughs) At I am Selena CC or SelenaCC.ca.
3: This episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Jeremy Kessler. Our managing editor is Kieran Outhorn. The music is by Nathan Burley. The election is over in six days. It's so close. Stay with us. Go vote. See you next week.